turn with me to Matthew 26, and we'll go through some of the material that we cover. If we have visitors in the class, and I believe that we do, you will notice on the handout that we have there, on the back I have kind of an outline of what we're going to cover. We always do that. And then at the end, I always like to do an application. And since today there's such a connection between the Old Testament book of Zechariah and what we read here in Matthew 26, I'm going to use that to talk about uh, some of the Messianic prophecies that are fulfilled. And I brought some of my booklets. Many of you already have that, but if you're new here, I've got at least a dozen copies of that booklet, which you are welcome to grab at the end. So if you're a visitor here, uh, you get a good message, you get a free booklet, and tell them you're a visitor out there and you get a free buffet too. So we really, that's all full service here right now. But let's, if we can, go to Matthew 26. We're going to look at three sections and really look at the story of three individuals. And the first of these, uh, we can see that as we come into the passage, it talks about as Jesus finished these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We're going to look at the story of Mary in just a minute, but I have a few slides to kind of set what we are now going to be looking at this Sunday and next Sunday in Matthew 26. And that is, this is, in a sense, the beginning of the passion narrative. We see that Matthew, who's been keeping all sorts of records here, now wants to put this in a situation reminding us that Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. And yet, interestingly enough, even though Jesus has said this back in chapter 16, we see it again in chapter 26, nevertheless, this uh, is something where we see the disciples seem somewhat surprised what was taking place. He wants, of course, to remind us and the writers, uh, the writing that he's doing to the Jewish population, that this was something that Jesus came to do. It was part of his mission. He was committed to it. And no matter the schemes of the various people in authority, uh, this was still superintended by divine action. And also he reminds us, because now he talks about the Passover, that this takes place during the Passover Very significant to the Jewish audience reading this, Matthew wrote his gospel in large part to a Jewish audience. This is why you see so many allusions back to the Old Testament and even here talking about this idea of the Passover. We are going to see today and uh, certainly over the next couple of weeks as we go through these final um, days of the life of Jesus before, of course, his crucifixion and resurrection, that Uh, Constantly, Matthew is referring back to prophecies written down in the Old Testament, literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that as well. Also, of course, by reminding them of the Passover, in some respects, it's also a very good connection between the fact that there was a Passover lamb. But now with this new covenant, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood would actually redeem us from slavery to sin. And some of you, if you're taking notes, you might put down 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, because here Peter uses that same kind of illustration that was, uh, in a sense, intended, I think, by Matthew in this opening section. And also then notices then now, verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so this also brings us to something else. I did not know this until I kind of looked this up in the commentary, but the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, 
is actually an individual who remained in office longer than any other first century priest. Okay, think this through. If you're in office that long, you're probably a pretty deceptive individual, probably pretty good of working the people and suggest that if nothing else, he knew how to keep the Roman guard, if you will, content. Most of the Romans actually lived away from Jerusalem, but they came here especially during these feasts. A lot of them were up in Caesarea, but they're there now. And any kind of problem, the Jewish people recognized that if they could not control the people, the Romans would control them. So the Romans were looking for Caiaphas and the others to keep the population down. And if they didn't, uh, you would certainly lose your position very quickly. And so if nothing else, it seems as a good indication that he knew how to handle any kind of political instability. And he knew well, that he would have to deal with that swiftly and efficiently. And the one troublemaker at the time, of course, was Jesus. And so you can see that as well. Well, now let's get into the passage, because in some respects, the next uh, verses that we look at are really the tale of three people. The first person is a woman who was actually there at the uh, home of Simon, who had been a leper. We read about later who that woman is, and we read that in the Gospel of John. It was Mary, who is the sister of Lazarus. And so the context is pretty simple. If you were to bring in an honored guest, oftentimes you would anoint their head with oil. But in this particular case, Mary uh, does a lot more because she empties the entire jar of perfume on him. And that was very extravagant, number one, and very unusual, number two. Well, that leads, uh, if nothing else, to some of the reaction. But before we get to that, let me just say that some commentators have made a big deal about this and said that, first of all, these perfume bodies usually had a very long neck to them. I'll show you a picture of one of those in just a minute. And so it usually would drip out fairly slowly. So at least some have argued, it's not in the text, but some have argued that maybe that jar was actually broken over his head. And one commentator said that maybe this could be an allusion to the fact that Jesus later was broken and poured out as an offering. That may be a little bit much, but nevertheless, it illustrates again that what was being done was very extravagant. And kind of the title of this section is that Jesus is worthy of our extravagant worship. Here's one of those bottle, bottles that actually has survived since the first century and gives you a little bit of an idea of what indeed that was. So whether or not it was broken or not, nevertheless, that's what she, Mary, was holding as she decided to anoint his head. Well, then we kind of also realized immediately that the disciples are saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And Jesus responds to this. And there wasn't necessarily uh, indignation simply out of nowhere. It turns out that during the Passover festival, there is um, action where they are indeed supposed to take some of the money that they would have given for the advancement of the Levites and the priests to give that to the poor. And so the implication is, is that here we are coming to the Passover. This could have been used to help the poor. Now, Jesus comes back and says, you know, why you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, always have me. And of course, this is, was, he wasn't downplaying the importance of helping the poor. Jesus already taught that, but making the case that 
I'm only going to be here a short time, uh, as we now know, a very, very indeed short time as well. And so this may be, in some respects, as he talks about a little bit later, this idea of the burial, this was really the only opportunity they would have to actually prepare his body for burial. And so he'd already told them that he was going to be crucified. They didn't understand. They just thought it was a waste. And if nothing else, it was certainly a lot of money to pour over the head of Jesus. Of course, they didn't understand, as Matthew is implying, that he was going to die and what that would mean. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. And in some respects, some people have said what is really going on here is that she, maybe unknowingly, is once again emphasizing that Jesus is worthy of honor, worthy of worship. She anoints his head kind of like a king. So you have both the Messiah, the king, and the high priest kind of coming together once again. She may not have understood the ramifications of all of that, but it's interesting that Matthew, later reflecting back on this, sees the significance and uses uh, an illustration that he had used before, sort of like a pearl that was uh, hidden in a field and is a pearl of great price. Uh, Of course, we point out that the disciples don't really understand that. And I think the best way to say that is they didn't see the whole picture because they're living right in the middle of it. And then Matthew, now looking back and seeing this, recognizes how significant that was. But after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes, we recognize now they are willing to risk their lives for the kingdom. And the question I think we have for us is, as Mary gave this as extravagant worship, I think the application for us, are we willing to follow Jesus with extravagant worship and obedience? That's at least the application I get from this first section. But then we move on from Mary, who has been willing to spend a great deal and give a great deal. We now come to the story of Judas. And in this particular case, We've got to at least give him his due. Some people are obviously saying, well, Judas was there to betray Jesus and nothing else. But think about this for a minute. We don't really know why Judas came and followed Jesus, but he did give three years of his life to the mission. Uh, He seems to have been willing to follow him, um, but eventually he began to be disenchanted. I don't think he set out in the beginning to betray Jesus. Um, If nothing else, he probably thought maybe that Jesus was going to be like the zealots, that he was going to bring about a military action. And he came to realize this isn't going to happen. And so he goes to the religious leaders, asks what they would pay for him to betray Jesus. And, of course, what a contrast. Matthew doing this in part to show the contrast between, first of all, a woman who wasted so much uh, for this expensive gift... She gave everything for Jesus, essentially. Judas sold out for money. And the amount of money, which we'll come back to a little bit later when we talk about some of the Messianic prophecy, is significant. Because if you read the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, there's a statement that says that if an individual is gored by an ox, if the slave is, you still have to pay reparations, even though that may be a slave. But that is a small amount to pay. 30 pieces of silver. And so that, I think, is kind of uh, indicating how little uh, Judas was willing to sell him off. 
Now, I found this in a commentary, and I'd never thought about this before. Because if you go back to the book of Judges, remember when Samson is betrayed by Delilah? Remember? Because uh, that's another betrayal. Uh, the Philistines paid Delilah 1,100 shekels of silver to betray Samson. So look at the difference between uh, 1,100 shekels and 30 pieces of silver. You can see, uh, in some respects, it shows how little even the chief priests valued this uh, itinerant preacher that they wanted to get rid of. 30 pieces of silver, which is sort of what you would pay if your slave was hurt. But here you can see the striking difference between uh, some of the other betrayals and what the cost for that betrayal was as well. Think about this from the other point of view. Of course, we see here that Judas, Judas is going to betray him. But then we now move on to the Passover itself. And I think it's helpful to understand that Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. Nevertheless, you see that Judas is invited to the Passover meal. He sits there as a brother, as one of the closest disciples. There is no indication that in the other Gospels, Jesus did not wash the feet of Judas. Can you think this through for a minute? I mean, you wash the feet of a man you know is going to betray you. You have a person sit at the table with someone you know is going to betray you. And if nothing else, does that not show the love of Jesus? And maybe the good news that if we ever feel like sometimes we are dishonoring of Jesus, maybe we don't follow him in a way that we would expect to be, that nevertheless that is the case. And so the backdrop of this, of course, is where Jesus claims his own blood will be the blood of this new covenant. Um, we even can use uh, what Paul writes later on about the fact that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies of God in Romans 5.8, nevertheless, Jesus died for us. And so even those who deny or betray Jesus can find redemption in this new covenant. Isn't that a good thing? Because if God could certainly still treat Judas with love, in the midst of that, that's news for us because there are times when, sort of like Judas, we deny the Father. We deny the Son. Uh, we live our own way. And it leads to a fundamental question that people have asked throughout the ages. What happened to Judas? Well, we'll find out later. He hung himself. But what in terms of his eternal destiny? There have been some in tradition that say, well, Judas is now in hell a suffering. But I thought I might just mention that one of my colleagues, Dale Talaferro, wrote a book a number of years ago called Judas and Divine Grace. And he makes a really compelling case, which I have found that other seminary pastors, priests, and teachers, and others have now begun to change that and say, you know, even though Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas is in heaven with Jesus today. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Now, again, I'm not going to go into all the details of the book, but it's a reminder that if indeed God can forgive and Jesus can forgive Judas, then the implication is he can forgive you and me. And I thought it was kind of an interesting uh, look at this whole idea of Judas and his uh, ultimate destiny. Let's move on to the last piece, because we've talked about, first of all, Mary. We've talked about Judas. And now we come to, of course, Jesus foretelling the denial of Peter. Uh, and there you see, again, maybe not a betrayal, but a denial. 
and I think a reminder that even if you love Jesus, even if you're a follower of Jesus, you can have moments of fear, you can have moments of doubt, and that is one of the great stories there as well. And so first of all, we come to, of course, when they sung the hymn, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. By the way, that's also from Zechariah. We'll get to that in just a minute. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. Well, that doesn't sit very well with Peter. You know, open mouth, insert foot. Here we come again. Uh, Peter says, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Just do not make those kind of statements. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter still won't have anything of it. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, we can see that now they go to Gethsemane. Um, this is a time in which he calls for the three closest, that is Peter, James, and John, to actually pray with him and they fall asleep. They're his inner circle. They're the closest to him. And yet here they are overcome by fear, by doubt, and by weakness. They promised that they would never betray Jesus. And I think they really meant that. And I think Peter certainly is making the strongest statement. He really believed that. He couldn't imagine what amount of pressure would possibly come on him, what amount of fear would come upon him where he would eventually deny Jesus. And if you've ever gone to Israel, and I know Pastor Graham is bringing a group again. I'm glad he made that statement. In light of all the conflict going on in uh, the Middle East right now, a lot of people say, should we go? But if you go there, most of the time we take you to the home of Caiaphas. And there's this courtyard where it's most likely where Peter denies Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week when we get to that. And so when they see Jesus arrested, when they try to prevent this in the Garden of Gethsemane, later on when he is there watching what has happened, he now finally denies Jesus three times. And if nothing else, this quote that you see is from the book of Zechariah. There's a lot of quotes, interesting enough, in Matthew 26 and 27 that Matthew uses from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And here, talking about sheep who are scattered when the shepherd is killed. Peter still does not believe that. He knows that everybody else is going to fall away. He just did not realize how wrong he was about his own strength, his own faithfulness in just a few short hours. Finally, of course, they uh, leave the upper room. They come to Gethsemane, um, which um, is a place at the kind of the base of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means, again, oil press. It's a place where they took the olive oil. They would press it down for that as well. One commentator, again, trying to find some symbolism there, said, you know, Jesus' heart was so pressed as he uh, prayed there in Gethsemane. And um, he'd already taught the disciples to regularly pray but in the past, it was lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In this particular night, he tells them to watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And if they prayed as Jesus did, then they would have been more equipped to fight temptation. And I would say, again, an application for us is, you know, if we prayed more diligently, I think we'd be more equipped to fight temptation. So let's talk about that just a minute. 
First of all, if we prayed like Jesus called for us to do, we'd be more in touch with the spirit than the flesh. Look at verse 41 here, because it reminds us here that, again, he says that um, that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So here, I think there is a very obvious implication of maybe we should be more dedicated to prayer so that we would be able to fight temptation. If we were dedicated to prayer, we see, as Paul writes in his epistle to the Philippians, that we would then spend less time worrying, more time praying, and we'd have the peace that passes all understanding. And also, if we did pray more, um, this time we were looking at Matthew 5, salt and light, but a little bit later, uh, Jesus is talking about anger. If we spent more time praying, maybe we wouldn't be stewing in anger. Maybe we wouldn't be fighting with other individuals, and a relationship with others would be better. So again, there's just a lot of implications about the fact that if we were to pray, these would make our lives a lot easier. And finally, if we came to God in prayer first instead of using prayer as last, let's all confess that sometimes we go and do it in our own flesh, then when it doesn't work out, then we pray to the Lord. But if we went to the Lord first in prayer instead of as a last resort, I think we'd have more peace, patience, love, all the fruit of the Spirit. As we look at these stained glass windows here, all these different fruits of the Spirit that we are to have uh, would actually be manifested by our prayer life. And finally, pulling one from the Old Testament in Proverbs 3, if we truly submitted to God's will instead of always pushing for our own, uh, we have the promise that our paths would be straight. Not necessarily always easy, but we'd have straight paths rather than crooked paths. And so as we look at the story today of Mary, of Judas, and of Peter, if nothing else, it's good news for the fact that sometimes... We stray as well. Sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we betray the Father. We betray the Son because we go in our own way. Sometimes we think of prayer only as a last resort instead of our first cause. And so hopefully some of the things that we're, even as we're studying here in Matthew 26, will help us live a biblical and godly life. With that, I thought for just a few minutes, I might uh, delve back into this whole idea of messianic prophecy. Like I said, I have about a dozen copies of this here. If I run, I'll bring some more next week. Because if nothing else, what we see in Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 are some statements that Matthew makes that hearken back to prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, which were written by the prophet Zechariah. One of those we see in Zechariah 11, where it talks about the fact that there is weighing out my wages, 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter, and I threw them in the house of the Lord. And I use this particular one because sometimes you'll have people say, well, you guys make these claims that all these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. But the reality is sometimes these prophecies are really vague. You know, you hear about Nostradamus you know, the prophecies that people say have been fulfilled. And so they're very kind of vague. They're written down a long time ago. Or maybe they weren't even written down and they were added later on. Uh, when you get into this issue of messianic prophecy, I think it is one of the best arguments, especially when you're dealing with a skeptic. It's also, I think, without a doubt, certainly a very good argument if you have an Orthodox Jewish person that you're witnessing to, because this is powerful, because we know these prophecies were written down before the time of Christ. 
Some people say, well, maybe they altered them later on. No, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are written down before the time of Christ, and we have those copies. So, obviously, we have something very unique. No other literature of antiquity, no other religious literature has something like the fulfilled prophecies in the person of Jesus Christ. So, let's look at how specific it is. First of all, the prophecy in Zechariah 11 specifies the metallic composition of the coinage. At the time when that was written, probably the coinage that was used, most valuable used, was gold. But if you certainly did not have access to gold coins, you might have used copper coins. Um, Sometimes they used silver. But very specifically, Zechariah says silver... And Matthew 26, verse 15 says that silver was the metal of those coins that Judas received. Number two, it specifies what? The number, 30 pieces of silver. And as I pointed out just a minute ago, if you go back to the Old Testament law code in Exodus 21, verse 32, this was the amount, according to the Mosaic law, that was paid for damage done to a slave that was gored. So not just silver, but 30 pieces of silver. And again, Matthew 26, verse 15 records that amount. We're getting more and more specific by the minute, aren't we? Then it indicates that that money would be returned. And this is something which we will read about next time, or actually in about two weeks. And that is where Judas, in a swoon of regret brings the money back to the chief priests and elders, but they did not want to accept it because it's now what's called blood money. So now we have a third aspect of that. Number four, then it also specifies that this money will be thrown in the house of Jehovah, ultimately the temple. And again, we will see in two weeks, in Matthew 27, verse 5, uh, that Judas cast these pieces of silver into the sanctuary. Pretty specific as well. And then the last one we run into is that it also states that the destination of the coins would be to the potter. Now, Matthew helps us understand that, and that's uh, we'll run into in the later, so we'll come back to some of that when we get into that passage. Matthew explains that and says that the chief priest took the money and actually purchased what's called a potter's field. That was a place of burial for strangers that uh, maybe were sojourners in the land. They were aliens in the land. They were what were called strangers. Uh, They did not have family there, but they died for some reason. And so they are actually there. So you now have, again, at least five very specific aspects of that prophecy. If that is not enough, there are some other places where Matthew is hearkening back to Zechariah. Because in uh, Zechariah 9.9, it actually says that a future king will present himself to Jerusalem riding on what? A donkey. When did that take place? That's Palm Sunday. We'll come to that as well. And also in Zechariah 12, verse 10, there is a statement that Jerusalem lament over the one who is pierced. Now, to understand that, at the time that was written, the mode of execution was what? Stoning. 
Matter of fact, crucifixion only developed in the Roman Empire. Some people estimate around 600 B.C. approximately. They borrowed this heinous form of execution from some of the other um, groups that they had actually vanquished. And, of course, Pierce could also have been with a sword, but you can again see the connection there as well. So all the way through, as Matthew is talking about these things, he's referring back to the book of Zechariah. So if you want to read in your quiet time, maybe from Zechariah 9 through 12, you'll say, my goodness, this is really looking to the future um, action of the Messiah. Which brings us to an interesting question, because if you confront your typical skeptic by this, it's a little hard to wiggle out to say that these prophecies are obscure, they're vague, uh, they could be reinterpreted a lot of different ways. Well, that's not how Matthew does. They look pretty specific to me. To say, well, these um, weren't actually written down, they were changed later on. No, because we actually have the documents for those as well. And so you oftentimes have somebody say, well, it just happened by chance. Well, there's a wonderful book that came out a number of years ago. I think I first read about it when I was looking through Josh McDowell's book, Evidence for Demands a Verdict. Peter Stoner, who was a professor at the time at Moody Bible Institute, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And what he did was just try to figure out the probability that just eight of these messianic prophecies might have been fulfilled by chance. One of those prophecies is this one here from Zechariah 11. And I won't take you through all the details, but he said that he figured that just the probability that eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by chance uh, is probably on the order of one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Now, again, that's a big number, but you might say, well, you know, sometimes people win the lottery. Well, this is a lot bigger number than the lottery. And so in the book, he uses this great example. He said, to help you understand what 1 times 10 to the 17th power is, imagine you have the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. For our younger kids here, they've never seen a silver dollar. But these are, you know, we used to have silver dollars, okay? Uh, And he uses a silver dollar. And just imagine one of these silver dollars was marked with a red X. And it's thrown somewhere in the state of Texas. And now you can fly by helicopter anywhere you want in the entire state of Texas. And that's the probability you reach down and grab that by chance. And as I say, that's only eight prophecies, uh, depending on who you look at. Josh McDowell says there's maybe six categories of Messianic prophecies. I've seen some others that say there's a hundred different Messianic prophecies, but this is just for eight. And I always like to say to my atheistic friends, you're betting your eternal destiny against these numbers. And I think a great illustration for why there's such a good argument for Messianic prophecy. So I know many of you in the room have already have one of these booklets, so if you are new to the class and would like to get a copy of it, I've got some of those there, because of uh, what I want us to understand is, is that God has given us lots of reasons uh, to believe in God's Word. But one of the more powerful arguments is found right here in the passages that we've looked at today with Matthew, as he hearkens back to some of these Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. With that, let me turn it over to Parker and let us end before we're done.